This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking to people in the hospitality industry about the government's move to remove capacity restrictions for large venues, for theaters, for sports arenas, but not for them. Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And before the break, we were talking to Bill, who said, hey, he's become quite a chef. He's not sure how much he's going to go back to anything, even when it's allowed. So, Selena Blanchard, what have you seen in terms of a return of your customers since things opened up a little? Well, I think we have a little bit of um, an issue where people want to sit outside and enjoy the beautiful weather. Uh, We're getting to the point now where people have to go indoors. Um, We do notice a lot of hesitation still about dining indoors. Um, But there's a lot of people that still want to go out and support their neighborhood restaurants. But uh, your own clientele, have uh, the people that you used to see regularly, are they back? They are back. And they've been great during this whole time. They've come out. They've they, uh, ordered takeout and delivery when that's all we were offering. But we were doing well. Uh, we're, we're about 15 to 20% less uh, pre-COVID sales. So, but obviously with the patio, um, that, that definitely helps us. But we're going to be taking that away soon. And if at 50% capacity, I won't be able to survive. The rent subsidies are coming to an end as well. And I still have to pay 100% of my rent. Yeah. Um, Larry Isaacs, what have you found in terms of a return of of customers going out to uh, an evening at the pub? Libby, I mean, it's obvious. I don't think anybody misunderstands that during a summer season, people want to sit out on patios and they're very happy to be out on patios. But the reality is I think people need to understand that the restaurant industry is like a car. It needs every single piece to work. Otherwise, the car doesn't go. So when you take away St. Patrick's Day, Christmas parties, cocktail parties, you miss a piece of that pie. We cannot make money. The restaurant industry makes five cents on every dollar. 95 cents goes back into the economy. We need every piece of our restaurant in order to make that five cents. And that's outside of paying loans. So the reality is we're heading into winter now. The offices are closed downtown. There's going to be no Christmas parties. There's going to be no big cocktail parties. People are still nervous to to move inside. So the reality is we've got a long road in front of us. We need the government supports to be back in place at the right levels. And we need the government's messaging to be correct that it's safe to go out and and visit these properties. If you don't say that, Bill's comment is correct. Costco, Walmart, Amazon are making trillions of dollars, and we're having to take loans from the bank to pay our bills. How does that make sense in any economic situation? Um, I take your point, but but also still curious, at least the piece of people coming out to the pub for the evening, uh, to what extent is that back? You're talking about people being hesitant, or are you finding them, they're coming out? 
in some areas, it's very different. It depends on the areas. In downtown, people are more hesitant. Out in the suburbs where there's less choices, people are a bit more confident, but not at the levels that we've seen prior to 2019, only a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, the ge- and the game changer here is the vaccination program that was brought in, that was mandated by law, as other jurisdictions have done, that it, it projects a safer place to visit and dine or to see a, a movie or whatever you want to do in it. That vaccination program needs to be implemented. Let the um, uh, narrative go along with it to encourage people to travel to those businesses that have a vaccination program. That's the difference that we are, are that we have with us today. Uh, just as an aside, um, I, I'm thinking of, I mean, I, I have to take some time, use it or lose it. And, uh, you know, after I traveled in the summer, I was horrified because the plane was packed like a sardine. You could remove your mask to eat. And, you know, I was for one of the, the legs uh, sitting next to teenage girls who ate the entire time. <laughs> Five hours. <laughs> so, right, and how long are these ho- these hockey games and basketball games? They can they can go on. So that's a, exactly. that's another anomaly. And I guess the airlines they get they get um, a bit of special treatment as well. Um, so again, um, Tony, I know you're you're meeting. Is it the provincial government that your your organization is meeting with? Yeah, we've had conversations, uh, positive conversations. I, I, I had a, a call from uh, the premier. Um, you know, he, he supports us. Uh, but the whole protocol and the, and the whole structure the, the, the governments have placed with including, you know, the health command tables and all that create red tape for decision. They, are, they play a very important role in decisions, no doubt about it, and I support that. But, you know, this is more common sense, and common sense should prevail. Uh, Larry, you were talking about people being hesitant uh, uh, and those summer coming back, but will removing capacity limits, won't that make those who are, say, willing to go and sit in a distanced restaurant think twice if everything is at full capacity? That is a potential, and that's why we're asking the government and the health department to, to as Tony said, now that everybody's double-vaxxed, what one mistake that was made by the government was when they double, said double vaccinations for all the customers coming in, why didn't they say double vaccination for all the employees at the same time? You have to set a stage for success, and if you don't, people are going to be hesitant. And if the government aren't forthright in telling everybody this is the time, things need to get back to normal, then it's going to be very difficult to ask an independent rest restaurant owner to be the advocate for safety that we need a much bigger message they've messaged now for the last 18 months stay at home you're gonna die don't move don't move the messaging needs to change and it needs to change now uh selena blanchard do you wish the government would mandate that restaurant workers have to be vaccinated because we're seeing vaccine mandates all over the place elsewhere yes i think they should I mean, in my restaurant, I did I did specifically tell the staff that I needed them to be double vaccinated. And did you did that work okay, or did you lose it people? Did. We yes, everyone in that at the restaurant was double vaccinated. Hmm. Uh, Tony Ellenis, do you want to see movement on that? 
I, I agree. We as an organization uh, send out a, a recommendation for for restaurants and hotels to set their internal policies, but that's not good enough. It needs to be mandated from government, similar to what they've done for for customers walking in. Hmm. And any? Do you have any sense that there might be some progress on that as well? We have not heard any any positive move on that. Uh, Ontario is not the only province. The other provinces are in the same boat. Yeah, it it is interesting to uh, hear what what's included and what's included. It seems to be happening kind of in a ad hoc kind of piecemeal way, Larry. That is exactly correct. And we've asked for that. Why have you put the onus onto small business to manage the vaccine mandate in the country? It would have been very simple when you said the customers have to be vaccinated, that you said the employees have to be done at the same time. And it would save a lot of headaches for us explaining to the consumers. And that's another reason for customers that are feeling a little bit uncertain is, are the staff all vaccinated? They don't know that for sure. So these are messages that are incorrect going out into the public. And, and this discussion sort of supports, you know, how compliant this industry can be. You let us know what you want us to do, and we'll do it. Just treat us fairly. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this does right from March 2020. You know, the food protocols went in, and, and, and yes, there was plexiglass expense and other materials. Then we were locked down, the longest lockdown that we know. Then we had vaccination programs put in. What else is there? Let us know. We just want to open and open because that also conveys a very positive message to consumer confidence. So what would you like to see coming from both levels of government, say, within the next month, Selena? Well, I'd like the subsidies to continue. I think that's absolutely necessary, especially considering all the expenses that small businesses have had to incur. Um, that would be great for from the federal government. With the provincial government, it'd be great if Doug Ford realized that if he's all for business, then treat everybody fairly. At the same level, um, you should all the capacity restrictions should be lifted, and you know allow for a, a, a you know a fair market for everyone. Tony, what do you want to see in the next? number of weeks. Well, no doubt the uh, cues and the serves of the federal government should come out and hopefully any day. At the provincial level, capacity is the way to go. And I do know they're going to lift them, but it has to be done sooner than later. And then the road to recovery and also to regain the trust of the constituents and the industry as a whole, they need to look at bringing down some chronic expenses and beverage alcohol pricing has always been a priority for the industry. We've been asking for it, and they need to pay attention to that now and come to the point where the industry is getting revolted like we are since the weekend. Larry, last word to you. The last thing I would add is that there's a lot of loans that, that were taken out by all the restaurants to survive over this period of time, and those loans are coming due now. We need those loans either written off or certainly delayed for a number of years, along with the rent and payroll subsidies need to come back at a higher level at 75% on each, and the, and the capacity's got to go. The capacity has to go immediately.
Okay, well, we'll have to see how it all works out. In the meantime, thank you so much, Tony Alanis, Larry Isaacs, and Selena Blanchard. Appreciate your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Right. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just before the long weekend, the government announced that theaters and big sports venues could revert to full capacity. And that has restaurants and gyms and the like crying foul, saying the government is discriminating against them. But here's how long-term care minister Rod Phillips explained that decision. We understand the pressure on on restaurants, uh, on gyms, and on other businesses. Um, We should be clear that those facilities don't have strict capacity limits, but they have requirements for social distancing. And we work very closely with the chief medical officer, who works very closely with our science table. uh, And we want to make sure that we move in the cautious process that we have to make sure that we're, we're making that momentum or keeping that momentum forward. So the decision around the capacity or the ability to have people uh, attend at stadiums and other venues was one that was made in cooperation with the chief medical officer. We will absolutely continue to work with him uh, and continue to work with the restaurant association, with restaurants and others. Uh, But it's just very important that we continue on this cautious approach. Okay, well, this is happening just as wage and rent subsidies are set to expire, and hospitality industry insiders are warning about a wave of business failures. What do you think? Do you think these rules are fair? And also, I want to know, are you are you ready to go to a big sports arena? Are you ready to go to the theater? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one. 1- 866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs, Tony Ellenis, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association, and Selena Blanchard of Lambretto Pizza. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, Libby. Okay, um, the, you heard Rod Phillips say they're working with industry associations, so let's start there. Tony Alanis, uh, what do you think of this? Well, the industry is furious and ready to step into a revolt. Totally disappointed, totally frustrated, and capacity restrictions have been lifted in those venues in those arenas that have thousands of people that, by the way, take their masks off to um, go to concession stands and eat and drink. And here we are. We have rooms, hospitality rooms, that are easier to control, easier to manage. I think the vast majority have proved it since March of 2020, and especially implementing the vaccination program. And we're struggling to be noticed. 
This is a big issue in the industry. Uh, Larry Isaacs, I mean, do you, uh, what do you think of the argument that uh, people in the Scotiabank arena say we'll have to wear proper masks and yeah, they can take them off uh, if they're, uh, you know, eating something, but for most of the time they're going to be wearing masks? Libby, the decision is shocking. It's disgusting. It's disrespectful to the restaurant industry. And Mr. Phillips' comment about how they can still manage social distancing in an 18,000-square-foot uh, people stadium is nonsense. It's not true. People will not have their masks on hardly ever. They'll be eating and drinking the whole game. We have to turn our music down in our restaurants so people don't talk loudly. You're going to have people screaming in the stadium. It's absolute nonsense. We have supported the government for the last 18 months at our own expense. We have spent millions of dollars in PPE and various other protocols that we've done, and we left out in the cold after this period of time with no no information on the subsidy programs being extended and with no explanation as to how sitting 300 people, remember that our patios are still socially distanced right now. How can anybody explain that? And we've asked the question and not one person can give us an answer. How? Just tell us how. Well, just as an aside, uh, personally, any reason for a lot of restaurants to turn down the music is fine with us here. So we can at least hear each other. But uh, that is uh, a totally different topic. Uh, Let's bring in Selena Blanchard. Mm -hmm. Selena, what's your reaction to this? Well, I totally understand what Tony and Larry are saying. I totally agree with them. It's extremely frustrating. Um, It doesn't make any sense. Um, I'd like to have some clarification as to why they feel sitting shoulder to shoulder with strangers in an arena is better or safer uh, than sitting at a restaurant with your family and your friends. Uh, Does it make sense? It's it's a well. I guess what they're saying is well. Most of those people will be masked, but uh, as you point out, they can take off their masks. Well, uh, yes. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, everyone that walks into a restaurant or one of these arenas have to wear their mask. But once they're seated, um, just as in the restaurant, they remove their masks when they have a drink or food, and. They'll put their masks on when they have to go to the washroom. So what's the difference? We're doing the same thing that the arenas are doing, Hmm. except we're, I believe, a little bit safer. And if you really want to think about it, because I'm not going to be sitting at a table in a restaurant with a bunch of strangers. I'm sitting with my friends and my family. If you go to an arena, I'm going to be sitting next to somebody I don't know. Hmm. Um, Larry Isaacs, uh, so um, is your quarrel really with the chief medical officer of health? I mean, they said this is the way the medical authorities wanted. I've I've heard, uh, you know, the chief of the science table explain this the same way, basically. So is your quarrel really with them? Look, the reality is right now that there's a buck-passing program. Nobody wants to take responsibility. The health is saying it's the province. The province is saying it's the health. But nobody can give true answers as to why we're in the position that we're in. And we've just been asking, please give us an actual scientific reason. Firstly, we've got no proof. If you look at schools right now, there are cases all over the schools of Ontario getting COVID every single day. You're not hearing anything about restaurants getting COVID any day of the week. We have lived to all the protocols right through these 18 months, but I can tell you that there's defiance out there right now and people are looking to revolt. 
and it's quite rightly so. It's not right. Why have we, we been left out in the cold without explanations? Nobody, we just want answers. Uh, Tony Ellenis, um, in the meantime, uh, the supports are set to expire. So what do you want to see on that front in terms of uh, wage and rent subsidies? And I do know that's what the federal government, um, they are working around the clock to announce some good news. I do not know what the final details will be, uh, but we're waiting for this any day. Uh, what I hear is going to be the first announcement of the new government. And hopefully we'll see a continuation into the spring of 2022. This industry right now has unbearable expenses that they're paying. They're paying loans. Some of them are bank. Some of them personal. I talked to many who have mortgaged their homes. They have seen food prices gone up. You know, 35, 40 percent of the total cost is on the food uh, purchasing. Labor costs have gone up. And... They have capacity limitations. And, 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 you know, much more important for the restaurant industry, the nature of the operation is that capacity decisions are more crucial. It can make the difference in survival more so than other sectors because every seat counts. Even before COVID, every seat counts in a restaurant. And that's revenue that is now flowing to the bottom line. Many restaurants... In many other May I just say as well that the Cafe PO program is going to be coming to an end, which then eliminates a lot more seats for the restaurants. And then we're only at 50% capacity. Yeah, and based on the infrastructure of the room, because every room is built differently, 50% is not much to survive on. This is just a waiting game for the restaurant to see their capacity is lifted. And it needs to happen fast. It's also less than 50%. If you think about it, if some of the restaurants have to do um, put in barrier, if they Absolutely. have to do barrier, sorry, if they have to do the social distancing, it's less than 50%. And by the way, it's no different than in meeting rooms, small meeting rooms, small banquet rooms. They have more rules in a meeting room, in a hotel meeting room, yet they don't have 100% capacity. So the decision that has been made does not have any common sense, but does not even have a scientific sense behind it. And I'll challenge the chief medical officer directly on that. Just doesn't make sense. Okay, let's hear from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi, Libby. It seems that the, the government's pretty cozy with big business. You know, Costco didn't get affected. Walmart really didn't get affected. And they just keep going after the small business. And quite frankly, I've gotten so used to not going out to dinner or not going out to a bar, you know, I've become a bit of a chef now. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm, I'm quite content to stay at home. So it's the double whammy. Even if they open these things wide up, I don't know whether people are going to come back in droves, but the government can let 16,000 into the ACC Center and they can't open restaurants? Good like, question. They, uh, Bill, thanks for your call. I think everybody has noticed the different, the double standards for uh, the different businesses. Uh, so a couple of questions here. Uh, first of all, to Larry or Tony, um, even if you believe that it's not fair the way they've done it, but um, a Scotiabank Arena is not really a competitor for a restaurant, is it? 
it is not a, a competitor. It's actually a demand driver. And, and we need those businesses to be successful as well for the area uh, restaurants that are located there. Uh, so it's not about, you know, against those stadiums and arenas. It's about looking at a an industry that's been suffering so long. And here we are with a vaccination program that is supposed to be the tool, that is supposed to be the remedy, and also to change the narrative of encouraging people to travel to eat in the rooms. And yet we're not capitalizing. We're punishing it. And, and it does look unfair overall. Okay, we've got to take a break, but we are going to be back with a lot more on this. We've got Tony Ellenis, Larry Isaacs, and Selena Blanchard. And uh, we'll take your calls. What do you think? Uh, could no capacity limits for uh, arenas and theaters, but for your neighborhood restaurant? Yep. They still have them. The numbers to call 416 360 toll free 1 866 740 and we will be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And is it just me? We just finished with a federal election, one that no one really wanted. And it seems like the provincial race is well underway with the government and the official opposition running ad campaigns and making campaign-like announcements. What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome our panel, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Campobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard Highroad, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Hello. Well, Thank I'm you, Libby. I'm going to start with Charles, because some of those announcements, including the one you just heard in Gavin's News, uh, have to do with long-term care. Charles, I know you're involved in the sector, so uh, we saw actually a flurry of announcements by Rob Phillips over the last few days. Um, What do you make of that? Well, Libby, I'm encouraged that uh, the minister is proceeding to act on the very things that we approved when I was in Treasury Board and its finance minister myself. Um, and as you know, we put forward 30,000 new beds to come through over the next number of years. Rod Phillips is acting upon the very things that we had initiated, and they were committed to it, and, and rightly so, because it's so badly needed. I'm developing a... Um, Uh, 350-unit building, a lot-for-profit with affordable housing complex in downtown Toronto, which is being used as a model for other potential new developments. And it's expensive to construct, so they're actually making revisions to the funding formula, making it a little bit more attractive for these not-for-profits and uh, uh, these new developments to, to, to exist. So I'm encouraged by the announcement. I'm glad they're proceeding to go forward and are taking it seriously. Karen, uh, you know, I, I have to say I was uh, despairing that they would be seeing this as an election issue, but it looks like 
they are. Uh, the only other thing I would say about it, and there's there's money for training and for um, hiring more staff, which is critical. But the only other thing I'd say is that they're they're concentrating on these big units, and and all the re- research shows that that's not what people want. They want smaller places. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, certainly my experience with, uh, only speaking very personally with my experience with my father, it's the smaller places, I think, that are um, do create that, that different element of care because the staff tend to be, uh, they don't transition as much, they have a closer connection to the residents, and it just has a more intimate feel to it. You know, the, the larger settings can feel a little too institutional, and so it is, but, you know, I also understand Charles's point in that they just, Facilities are expensive to construct, and if you have a, if you're able to get a piece of land, you want to maximize that opportunity. And so, it's it's just that balance. Is how how do you how do you build what you need to build for the demand that is out there, while also creating an environment that is actually conducive to to feeling more um, intimate and, and less like an institutional setting. Karen, uh, do you th- do you think that? they are um, thinking that this is going to be an election issue? I think they feel the pressure of delivering on this and whether um, they, I certainly think they will be held to account uh, for what happened in the initial waves of the pandemic in long-term care and some of the comments that were made and then also some of the promises that were made. Um, I, I do think it's something that the government rightly feels that they need to be held accountable for and, and I think that they will be. John, uh, sort of this is a a chicken or an egg question. I mean, one of the things that I heard from stakeholders is that dealing with Rod Phillips night and day from Marilee Fullerton. So was it just that she was less competent at this or was it that, um, you know, Ford uh, didn't listen to her as much? Well, and I think we've we've talked about it here before too, Libby. And your your organization has been, um, uh, or I should say, Carp Carp has been one of those organizations that was pretty vocal in uh, in ensuring that Marilee Fullerton was was no longer the minister of long term care, given some of the some of the mixed messages that was going on whilst she was the minister. And we knew that once the premier put in Rod Phillips, we knew it was going to be a game changer or a channel changer because we knew that Rod had a little bit more experience with respect to. Um, uh, the politics of the issue also had a better relationship with the premier, um, but also d- dealt with finance uh, as the finance minister prior to him being let go uh, in cabinet. So he knew where the money was, how to be able to deal with cabinet on, on issues that involved money. But all that to say, uh, I'm just glad that beds are being created here. And I think the announcement today with 256 beds, specifically in this Vaughan area, um, uh, announcement today was, was positive. It's part of what, I think 260, 2700 Beds alone in the York region, um, which which is great, and, and and Charles speaks to the to the fact that the previous government had made a commitment as well. But I think we're actually starting to see the action now. You know, this this long term care problem goes back to a number of governments ago. It's not just you know this is we're talking about potentially 10, 15, 20 years of neglect. Uh, uh, and I think the one thing that um, that we have all learned through this pandemic was how wo- woefully 
ill-equipped, uh, not only staffing at long-term care facilities, but the facilities themselves. So the fact that we're actually starting to see some action, I think is good. I think it's one of the promises that the Premier made. And you'll see that, to your question about whether or not this is an election issue, I think it will be. I think it's one of those things that the opposition will, will try to throw at the Premier. And I think the more that he's able to say, hey, look, you guys have talked about it for 15 years. We've actually done it. I think the more people will be appreciative of the fact that we're actually getting beds uh, and homes uh, so badly needed in Ontario. Right. Uh, But, you know, one of the things, uh, and that's the mantra, and it's true, that is a very long-standing problem. But the one thing I wonder if it will be forgiven is, you know, after the first wave, everybody knew a second wave was coming. And this government did not even try to do the things that were needed that, for instance, were done in Quebec. Charles? Uh, Libby, uh, in terms of the ability to, to make this happen? Well, in terms of after the first wave, uh, Quebec put in some measures to try to hire people with bonuses. They uh, had more vigorous, uh, you know, stringent requirements for infection control. They sent they sent people in specializing in infection control. You know, those things didn't happen here. And that's why the second wave was uh, even worse than the first. Yeah, it was. And, And, you know, and to their credit, I mean, they recognize that they were caught from they were caught flat-footed and unlike what happened in Alberta they did take some made some decisions but I'm looking at other countries around the world that have taken the similar steps to inoculate their their population and take more military type strategies to fight this as a war to get it done and I'm specifically talking about Portugal that was cited as one of the countries that did well but but Ontario's results have improved since but notwithstanding we have to be vigilant and some of the steps that are being taken are necessary and he's getting beat up by by some of his his uh, base who are opposing some of those steps which is interesting um, but notwithstanding uh, uh, they've they've taken some corrective action, but it worries me that it's always a reflection of the bad decisions that were made previously. In other words, he he's open to changing his changing his mind, but I wish there would be more preparation prior in order to enable those changes to happen more. Well, that's what I'm asking. Are they going to be punished because they seem to be very reactive? It, you know, it's uh, they change their minds and a, and a good decision, but it comes after a bad decision or an action. Do you think, Charles? That well, you know, they it, will it, be. They're, they're, they're making decisions based on polling, it seems, and, uh, and they're looking at the, 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 and that's normal in politics. I guess people react to the pressures being made. But I, um, I, I would say that it's distressing, but it's, it, it, he seems to be taking the actions ultimately that are necessary, albeit a bit slow. Uh, Karen, what do you think of that? I think, I think that um, the Ford government will win another term. I, so I don't think that's really. Um, I think I don't think that's the question. I think um, you know, really, will they will, will they win with the same majority? Probably not, because I, I do think there have been, um, you know, throughout the last four years, from the you know the beginning aggressive nature of the administration to then the response to COVID, which was felt to be strong at the beginning, and then. Uh, kind of unclear through the vaccine rollout, uh, what what was the strategy, and then you know even now, um, the fur over you know how come MLSE gets all the, what they want when other small businesses are still struggling, which is kind of a repeat of how come Costco got to stay open but my local shop had to close, 
And so, you know, I think that there will be some real questions around, you know, what is the direction that the government is setting for the future? And I, and I think that there will be points along the way that the public will question Ford when he says, I'm here for the little guy. And there will be questions around, you know, what is, um, you know, what is the leadership and what is the, you know, wh- where do you want to take Ontario? And, and, and I think that um, if, if he can answer those questions, it will be to his benefit. If he's not able to answer them, I think that there will be a cost, but I don't think it, the cost will be his government. John, uh, why an ad campaign uh, and seemingly a campaign campaign now? <laughs> well, you know, I think, uh, you know, especially after the federal election being over, you know, I think Canadians were, were people, especially in Ontario, Ontarians were kind of happy to say, okay, no more ads during during their favorite shows and, and favorite radio shows or TV programs, and now they're starting to see it over again. But, you know, I think because there's a fixed election date, as there is um, um, in Ontario, which is, you know, June of, of 2022, um, now that we know that that's that's when the election is going to happen, everything gets gets worked back. And even the media, you know, always play back. You know, when when it was June of 2021, earlier uh, this this year, this past uh, summer, people were media were celebrating the fact that oh, we're one year away from the election. So there's no doubt that you know campaigns and campaign teams uh, are going to start to put in ads and and try to define their opponents, uh, especially because you know Stephen Del Duke in his case, uh, who yes was a cap- Minister and, and Kathleen Wynne's government, but is widely unknown in the Ontario um, uh, population. So I think it's important that from the from the from the conservative perspective to define him uh, in a way before he defines himself. And I think the NDP are also kind of are, are trying to position themselves because they see a potential problem from the Liberals on their left flank uh, if uh, if they need to sort of determine and inoculate themselves from potential split votes. They need to also define uh, Stephen Del Duca uh, and also attack Ford as well. So it's a bit of a multi-pronged uh, uh, strategy. But I think them getting out there now, you know, uh, especially after a federal election where people still have a bit of election, you know, fever amongst them. Uh, is fever? Not I would say fatigue. <laughs> well, fatigue, I should say. Well, fever could be, a, could be sort of a negative way too, I think, Libby. But yes, fatigue for sure. But but it's still it's a it's a heightened time when when you know before Christmas when you know people really do shut off on it, all things political to get at least one ad or a couple of ads in there now to kind of start forming the opinions before they start in earnest in 2022. Charles, so we've seen ad campaigns. We're seeing them from the PCs. We're seeing them from the NDP, which seems to have the money for it. Uh, are Do the Liberals not have money to run it? I mean, are they going to be able to, uh, you know, get off the mat? They they're, don't even have full party status. Ads and basically, you know, you know, elect us because Doug is bad. That's kind of the the theme. Uh, but the NDP and the Conservatives are both using similar ads to go against El Duca. Um, the Conservatives have taken a, 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 a neat way of going after the NDP or Andrew Horvath specifically in terms of not being consistent or, or saying one thing, doing another. Um, but all of it is is very toxic. It's all about personalities. And they're all trying to take advantage of what they can within these next few weeks where they're unregulated. And this is where the Liberal Party has to step up because of lack of funding to the extent that the other two have gotten more support. Um, it, it's going to be more difficult for them. But 
I don't know, none of them are talking about policy. None of them are talking about what really happens or what decisions are going to mean for us as we go forward. All of them are taking us for fools in the way they're just positioning and trying to frame the other individual as opposed to the party itself or the policies. Um, I guess it's all about trying to capture our hearts or just trying to get the heart and soul of the individual and making sure that they want us over. Um, but it's a long ways away still. <laughs> so uh, these ads at the start may be interesting, but it's what's going to happen later into the campaign. What would you advise Stephen Del Duca to do to raise his profile? Uh, yeah, and we're having those discussions, and, you know, he is getting a bit more press. He is being sought after by media to counter Doug Ford, more so at times than Andrew Horvath, and that's positive. But it, it, it's a matter, and he knows, he's acknowledged himself, he's not the most charismatic individual when it comes to being out in, the, in front of a camera and so forth. They are trying to uh, brand him as uh, as a... As, as Kathleen Wynne, albeit I would hesitate to say that he wasn't as close as the way they're making it out to be. Um, so he has to find a way to be progressive, to be forward-looking, uh, and, and to acknowledge that he you know, has a strong ability with, uh, uh, with their team. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we have some of these vaccine mandates coming due for workers. Today is the deadline for long-term care workers. Hallelujah is what I say. And uh, at the TTC, they're thinking of trying to call back retired people because they're expecting a labor shortage because of this. Karen, uh, you were the chair of the TTC. What, what do you think looking at this? Yeah, it's it's certainly a challenge, and I can say, you know, even within my own organization, uh, with a vaccine mandate, um, we we had to terminate uh, four people because they wouldn't get vaccinated. Four out of and, how many? Sorry, uh, four out of about uh, seventy-five. Okay, well, yeah, go so on. It's sorry. Not, you know, and we were worried actually because we thought it was going to be more than that even. And uh, but the mandate did encourage uh, p- individuals to get vaccinated, where we thought that wasn't going to happen. So there is no question that individual people's individual choices have an impact not just on public health but on organizations' ability to continue to to operate. And it's a challenge because the, the TTC it has a very you know it has a large employee base, and if 10% of that base decides not to get vaccinated or 15%, then that's a huge hit to the organization's ability to continue to operate. And calling back retired workers isn't. It's not that's not a sustainable strategy. So, you know, and again, to be honest with you, I don't envy the chair, I don't envy Jay, and I don't envy the CEO how they're going to figure this out because um, anything that they're doing is just is just temporary. And it that combined with the fact that ridership is at historic low levels, and with the talk about people not returning to the office until you know later of next year. Um, it's it's unclear when ridership is going to rise, so it's creating multiple challenges for the TTC, and it's it's not um, a good situation. John, uh, would you blame the union for a lot of this? I mean, they started off by uh, asking or advising workers not to disclose their vaccine status. They backed off when it looked like they were in legal jeopardy. But, uh, you know, would you blame them for a big part of the problems that are are happening now? Uh, Short answer, yes, I do. Um, you know, and it's not just all the sort of the union, but certainly some of the mixed messaging that has been happening over the course of the last little while. And let me just say, too, when Kieran Stintz was 
in charge of the TTC how well run it was and how impeccable it was. And, uh, and to her credit, she did a great job as the chair. Um, but no, you know, the TTC has a huge amount of challenge, and we always knew this, especially during the pandemic. We knew that uh, it was one of the, you know, as, ma- as a mass transportation, uh, uh, you know, organization, it was going to be a challenge for them. I think that they've done the best they could to try to ensure that as the pandemic was, as we were weaving out of it, and as people were starting to get back to work and going to sporting events and that's kind of stuff that that they they did everything they possibly could to ensure their cars their street cars their their buses were cleaned uh they did ads to show that things were coming back to normal when uh, when school was started so they've done what they could libby to try to get people who are still quite frankly fearful of going into a into into the ttc now with respect to mandated workers this is uh, vaccines this is where the union became problematic because at first they they were against it, and then, and then, you know, one union. I think there was an independent MPP, Roman Barber, who oh. uh, they were supporting. Uh, remember when he was he yep. came up with a private members bill that basically said th- that people couldn't be fired if they weren't man- if they weren't vaccinated, and then one of the unions, the lo- one of the local unions, supported him, and then the bigger union, the amalgamated uh, union um, uh, transit workers, basically said, no, 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 that's wrong. We're not supporting them. So there was that kind of thing that really didn't help much and added to the problem. Uh, but overall, I think the TTC has been doing a really good job to try to get people and entice people to get back on transportation, and they're going to need it. Now that sporting events and work is starting to get back to you know what what is a new normal. Well, yeah, I mean people are fear fearful of going on the TTC, but I guess the calculation, Karen, is that they're not fearful about going to the Scotiabank Arena. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it's I don't I don't know how fearful people are of going on the TTC. I think that um, you know up until now, and I, things are to John's point, things are going to be changing slowly, but. You know, up until now, if you wanted to get around people working from home, you could get in your car, and it was easier to get in your car than it was to get on the TTC. And without the sporting events, there was not the draw downtown. Well, now we're seeing the sporting events. We're seeing the draw back to downtown. We're also seeing a significant increase in congestion. Oh, my goodness. It's I'm glad you brought that up. It is It is just... It's... it's, it's <laughs> sorry. It's unbelievable. And so... You know, that has a role to play as well. And, and how that plays out will, will, is, you know, to be seen, whether or not people will just opt to work from home or whether they will get back on transit. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things at play, and there's a lot of dynamics that are still unclear about how it's all going to shake out. But, you know, I think that, again, to your point about the union, whether it's their fault or not, it's, they certainly missed a leadership opportunity because we saw in the medical sector that we saw, you know, the OMA, the ONA, they came out and they said really strongly their members needed to be vaccinated, period, end of story. And the TTC leadership could have done that. They didn't do it. And now there's a problem. Uh, yeah. Speaking of congestion and everything. So one of the things that is set to become a problem or a big campaign issue is this Highway 413. Uh, And on the one hand, there are people who want it, and I mean, this is trite to say, but a lot of people who say it's very harmful, it'll hurt the environment, and that really what we should be doing is using the 407 more, Um, John. 
Well, in, in full disclosure, I actually represent the 407, so I'll, I'll be measured in what I say, Libby. But just so you know, um, but yeah, no, I think. Listen, I, I've been a, I've been a big supporter of, of toll roads, and, and I know there was even discussion. Karen, I think, was was still a counselor at City Hall when there was talk about putting a toll. Uh, uh, one of the solutions of the Gardner was putting a toll lane on the Gardner. But what we're seeing now is HOV lanes on the 400 series highways, and uh, anything that that the government can do to try to uh, you know get people moving quicker. Uh, the 407 is obviously a solution to that. Another highway um, could very well be a solution to that issue. I think that's where the debate happens, where you know those that live in that area that's going to be affected by potential 413 are going to be worried about it. The fact that there's you know um, uh, protected green spaces along the way there, too, is another issue. So all of this adds into the mix of why this is a controversial issue and, and why you're seeing, I think, very vocal people on either side of, the, of, of this. But whenever you deal with roads or transportation, then there's the discussion, well, we should get people off cars and off the transit. Well, here we go, right? We were just talking about the TTC, and I think we should get more people on the TTC and the GO and, and other, other stations. I think they're safe. I think they've done a lot of good work to get people out. So that congestion that we're seeing on the Gardner every day now uh, will be less congested because it has been, it is absolutely, even the DVP nowadays is just back to, I think, pre-pandemic days. Karen, what's your view of this? I mean, speaking of uh, former municipal politicians, one of the key opponents is the former Mayor David Crombie. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, generally speaking, again, I don't have the studies at the ready, but generally speaking, I don't think the solution is to build more highways. Uh, the solution is to figure out how we maximize the use of our existing road space. And that... 407 is too expensive. Yeah, and the 407 is expensive. It is. I don't, I don't take it. I mean, I do take it if, it's, if I'm in a hurry and it's going to save me some time, <laughs> but it is expensive. There's no question. And um, it's in its and it's sort of it's a general thing as well around okay how are we going to grow this region and how are we going to manage like you know we were we were on the cusp of trying to tackle the congestion issue before the pandemic hit and then we all got sidelined and then you know decisions were made around road space that made sense at the moment but I, I, you know and I'm I'm an advocate for bike lanes too but you know again we have to kind of figure out how are we going to how are we going to manage through this coming out of the pandemic when different problems are emerging. And again, how do we not make short-term decisions for longer-term issues? And and that's a problem. And, and uh, listen, I don't know the answer to that, because as a politician, you're not elected for the next 20, like for decisions you make for 25 <laughs> yeah. years out. You're elected for the decisions that you make that's going to impact my life today. Um, but it, it, it's a challenge. And, and I, I think that the government, if they have a plan, it's not clearly articulated. And, um, and that's something that would benefit them if they did have one. Okay, uh, we are running out of time. First of all, I have to, we've we've uh, lost Charles, uh, but uh, let's wrap things up here. John, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think just you know the the, the fact that the mandating uh, the vaccines is working. I've been to a number of, of restaurants and, and shops and whatnot where. You have to show proof of vaccine. I think restaurants and, and retail businesses have done a great job, Libby, quite frankly, and in, in, in adapting to that. There was never a lineup. There's some lineups, but I think people are, are, more, are, are you know, patient. Uh, the staff are well-trained, and it's been going smoothly so far. So we'll see when the app comes, I think, in the next couple of weeks, and we'll see how that plays out. But so far, so good. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we're about to talk to some people in the restaurant industry who are not that happy. Uh, Karen, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think that, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, the vaccine passport has been good and that the numbers are stabilizing and that the outbreaks that we're seeing 
are in schools where the kids aren't vaccinated or in areas where the vaccination rate is low. So we know that as a strategy, asking people to get vaccinated and then requiring proof of vaccine to participate in some of those daily life activities is is a positive thing. Um, You know, I think that just personally speaking, um, I I think that the government is going to need to shift a little bit more in favor of those who have been vaccinated, because even though we can still go to the movies and go out to restaurants, you know, at some point there's a logic question about how much does it make sense to continue to collect contract tasting information, to physically separate, to wear a mask when you're fully vaccinated, surrounded by people who are fully vaccinated. Okay, well, we will have to see on that one. Thank you so much, John Capobianco and Karen Stintz, and we will be back uh, talking to you next week, if not sooner. Thanks. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will be talking to some restaurant and other business owners about what they think about the latest wrinkle in this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.